This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Good afternoon. My name is Michael Yonker, and I am a Ph.D. student in uh, religion at Andrews University. I am uh, currently in the dissertation phase, so, so lots of uh, uh, writing, um, and I'm interested in the topics of freedom and time, uh, and th that relates to theodicy in a lot of different ways, and so uh, I also, of course, when looking at the Bible, have an interest in the story of Job, uh, because it definitely relates to these kinds of themes. And so um, that is what uh, I will be sharing about uh, today, is uh, Job, and offering a little bit of a different perspective to try and uh, my goal is always uh, to try and, you know, uh, twist your mind a little bit so that you can think in different ways and sometimes see some old problems. Remember, Job is a, a book of questions and suffering and problems. Uh, and so I like to, you know, take the opportunity to, to really stretch our minds and uh, to help us think about some of these more difficult questions in, in some, some fresh, uh, interesting ways. So we will be looking at uh, Job in... Um, three parts if you continue to join us. Job part one. And uh, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach to it. Uh, actually, before I begin, let me offer a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I ask as we begin this, this talk, uh, looking into uh, the life of Job, that uh, our hearts and minds can be prepared to uh, learn and to think uh, about uh, some of the most difficult questions uh, that face us, and that is the suffering uh, of people, especially uh, good people, uh, and uh, we ask that um, your spirit will guide us uh, and help not only us, but uh, maybe those uh, around us uh, that we can share with them more of, of your love and bring them into a, a more full understanding of, of who you are and why you do and permit the things you do. In your name we pray, amen. <clears throat> All right, Job part one, and uh, the title of my talk is a little bit different than what's in uh, the program. Uh, it is without a curtain or dressing room, uh, the play as real life. So that's just kind of making off of a, if you have a stage play, you know, normally uh, the, the rest of the story is kind of buried behind in the dressing room uh, and behind the curtain as you're waiting for the play to begin. Uh, but uh, I want to uh, approach the story of Job uh, without the curtain and without the dressing room and jump right into it uh, to uh, see the story in a little bit of a different way. So that's kind of, kind of be my approach. Uh, and I think it might can, and can be a helpful path to understand some of the questions uh, in the story of Job. Uh, I want to briefly open by noting uh, the importance of Job's uh, story, his book in the Bible. Um, Ellen White notes that um, Moses, while preparing for his ministry uh, during his confusing time in the wilderness, uh, wrote the book of Genesis and also the book of Job and commented that uh, they would be read, I think both books, uh, with the deepest interest by the people of God until the end of time. And I most certainly agree uh, that uh, Genesis and Job uh, contain material that is of deep interest to all readers uh, and will continue to be until uh, the end uh, of time, the close of time. So again, to explain my approach, um, in part one I will be sharing without a curtain or dressing room. The play is real life to kind of help take you into uh, Job's life experience without the prologue and conclusion. That's the key thing I want to do as I initiate you into the story of Job here, is to bring you in without the prologue and conclusion. I want you to think like Job. You understand? That's what I want you to do, because I think it will help us see the story of Job in a different way, and I know that many of you are already familiar with the prologue and conclusion, because most of the time when pastors or uh, other teachers talk about this story, that's what they read. And so we're going to focus a little bit more on Job as Job, uh, and uh, not share that information at the beginning, because I think it, it can help us understand uh, the questions that he's asking. Uh, in part two, friends and foes, the dangers of common sense theology. Um, I won't uh, explain that too much right here. I'll do that at the beginning of part two. But uh, common sense is both a good thing, a marvelous, wonderful thing that we should all uh, be following in uh, our lives on a regular basis. When you come to a street, uh, you want to look both ways. You know, common sense, always do uh, what makes sense. Um, and don't try and uh, stretch the boundaries of, of uh, what seems like uh, reasonable courses of action. Um, however, in theology, 
uh, for a variety of reasons that can be a problem and I will share a little bit more about that in part two as we dig into the uh, dialogues of Job's three friends and um, point towards some interesting applications uh, for how we should and can understand theodicy in that context. And in part three, wisdom's recluse or revealing the veil, I will uh, attempt to give um, somewhat of a, a fresh response uh, to the classic questions that we ask as uh, readers of scripture and readers of the story of Job uh, that might, might be more satisfying uh, than uh, some answers have been, uh, but um, reorient the way that our minds think about the question. And that's uh, why I uh, use this kind of clever title, uh, Wisdom's Recluse, that's a reference to God. And uh, revealing the veil uh, is a, an attempt to not focus on uh, the compartments, like when you have a, a veil, you know, separating rooms, you know, like a curtain. Um, you know, you, we're normally thinking about what's on the other side of the curtain. So when you're in one side of a room and there's a curtain separating it, what's on the other side? What's in the, you know, the dressing room of the, the play, you know, thing? So what, how are they putting on their costumes? What's, what's the real story? What are the real characters and people like? Um, and I'm going to try and shift focus uh, and talk about what the veil itself or the curtain itself actually is and what role it plays in how we understand wisdom's recluse or God. So what is God's curtain? What really is his curtain? So we're going to look at revealing what the curtain is. So kind of a new way of thinking about it. Um, so that is what we will do in uh, part three. Um, I have to begin, of course, uh, with just a very brief introduction on uh, theodicy, the word, because it's so often associated with the story of Job. And um, it asks, uh, how is God just in light of all of the wickedness and evil in the world? Uh, theodicy, the justice of God. And it is an age-old question from every religion, every culture, every society. No one has missed this question uh, as soon as they have begun to think deeply and have pondered if there is a higher being or a God. They want to know why awful things happen to uh, ordinary people, uh, whatever that may be, depending on their views of morality. And of course, uh, the good people in their society. Why do bad things happen to what uh, we would call good people? Is there any rhyme or reason to it what is God's role in all this? And natural disasters of various kinds, humans being hurt, uh, you know, of course it doesn't end with humans. If it did, then that would be very interesting. Uh, if animals were immortal while we humans came and went, wouldn't that be a weird world? Uh, but that's not the world we live in. Uh, and uh, nature animals uh, also suffer and die for reasons that can seem uh, inexplicable. Um, of course, uh, Paul Harvey was a longtime radio um, broadcast uh, host, and he was well known. He passed away uh, in just a couple years ago. Um, but he was well known for the phrase, the rest of the story. And he would, uh, his, his you know, big thing uh, was to always tell stories that were um, uh, missing an important detail that would help you identify or, or put, make sense of the story. And then he would, uh, you know, kind of clue you in slowly and then kind of reveal the story and say, you know, say that that's the rest of the story when he would fill in the gaps. And so uh, it was a kind of a helpful thing and an entertaining way uh, for him to kind of hook people into the story because they'd be wondering, well, you know, what, is, what story is this? And then all of a sudden he'd reveal that it's a story related to someone famous or this or that we, that, that we already knew, uh, but that this was background and other details that we didn't know. And, and now it, we saw the story in a different light uh, with this extra information, the rest of the story. And um, I like that uh, in the light of, of this talk um, on Job. Uh, and the idea of, of God um, not always sharing the rest of the story with us when we might want it. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, in the light of this year's theme, I think it is important uh, that we know that there is a rest of the story. Before men and angels, there are those watching, those uh, paying attention to us uh, and observing that we may not be always conscious of, uh, but they are definitely there and they definitely are uh, a part of the story. But before we get to the rest of the story, that was why, again, I told about uh, without the curtain. Uh, before we get to the rest of the story, I want to jump in today into Job's life and mindset as recorded in Scripture because when bad things happen to most of us, um, including those around us, uh, you know, we often don't have time to step back objectively. We are sucked into the story. That's why the play becomes real life. 
to us because we can't pause and check out the, the details backstage and understand what's really going on. We are always already, when we're caught into suffering situations, we're sucked along right into them. It's not an option. We don't have time to think about it, and we don't have time to prepare ourselves and so forth. That's the idea of a, a, you know, a bad trial is that we are sucked into it uh, unwillingly usually, and uh, they often don't make sense. Um, I you know, shared um, uh, last time uh, my uh, step-grandmother, uh, Ruth, um, who is not doing well uh, now, and it's, uh, you know, it is a, a theodicy question for my grandfather. Um, as uh, you know, they converted to Adventism 15 years ago, and at the time she wholly embraced the Adventist message, uh, the Adventist diet, you know, healthy eating, the whole thing, uh, you know, and was just a, an enthusiastic, gung-ho Adventist. Um, and she still, you know, would be relatively young uh, and healthy uh, for you know most you know women her age. But just the last five years, a, a mysterious ailment that the doctors don't really have a handle on. They don't know what's really going on. But her body has just, you know, everything in her body has just begun to shut down slowly and painfully. Uh, you know, just uh, everything just collapsing. And uh, it's, it's very difficult to witness that and to, to ask why. You know, why her? It's, it's very unusual. There's no reason, no rhyme. You know, I mean, it makes no sense. Um, and it's, it's very difficult uh, to, to observe. Um, and so, you know, we're all, all around it. We all have connections um, to these these kinds of difficult questions, uh, whether they're you know, real close to home, whether we're currently experiencing them, or whether they are uh, more distant in friends and others that we know of, uh, uh, there is, there's always going to be suffering that doesn't seem to be reasonable or fair. Uh, and and that, is, that is life, uh, and it's hard to hide from, and uh, you know, that is where we often find ourselves. So we're living the pain. Um, and that is why, when we look at Job now, uh, I want to look at the prologue last because I want to help us understand Job's perspective and how he asked the questions of theodicy um, as they appeared uh, to uh, his friends and himself. I think it would be a helpful twist rather than focusing on uh, just the prologue and the great controversy theme around it. We'll get to that last. So let's begin, jump right into Job's perspective. This is the life of Job. What kind of a person was he? His sons used to go out and hold a feast in their house on his, their day, and they would send and invite their sisters and uh, drink and eat with them. When the days of the feast were on the course, Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Um, I will just very briefly note on the uh, burnt offerings that this is not uh, necessarily a, a, to be understood here as a sin offering. It is more just um, as any of us would do as responsible parents. Um, it is an intercessory you know, prayer for them in the sense of uh, we want them as you intercede for anyone um, uh, to you know, encourage them. You know, I, I pray for my family members. I pray for those around me. Uh, for friends. Um, it, is, it is not as if he is uh, you know, forgiving them for their sins or anything of that sort. So it's, it's just more of a, a burnt offering of, of, to God to try and uh, be a responsible parent to care for his children. He's praying for them. He wants them to do right. Um, and that is uh, Job's daily mindset. He's a good, good person. We can see that from here. I'm not taking God's word from the prologue. I'm again just going by what Job did. Uh, Job's life and his activities. So, let's jump uh, into near the end of chapter 1, Job's day. Um, none of the background, but uh, now there was a day out of the blue, randomly, no rhyme or reason to it, it just happened. There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. That's number one. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. To the right, beneath us. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three companies and made a raid upon camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to to tell you. To the left. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters, who were eating and drinking in their eldest brother's house, 
And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Think about this as if it happened to you. You know, cut out the prologue. Just all of a sudden, there is this very dramatic uh, set of occurrences. And, uh, you know, it would be hard to see this as coincidence if uh, one servant survived each of these uh, catastrophes and uh, appears before you and says, I'm the only one. Everyone else is, everything else is gone and dead. Everything else is gone and dead. Um, how would you be? Uh, and I think that we can only ask ourselves uh, in our own minds how we would really respond to that if it happened to us. Out of the blue. Just happened to us something like that. Imagine it. Uh, catastrophe has struck. Every part of your life, not just you know, family, not just your job, uh, not just you know, uh, some other, you know, your money, uh, but everything all at once, just like this. It's dramatic in one day. How could it be a coincidence? It doesn't sound like a good day. And I do hope that we read this the next time that we are personally struggling uh, with uh, whether or not we're being treated fairly. Job was struck fully uh, to the full extent of his possessions. The boundaries of his existence were fully penetrated. Job lost everything. The events weren't stretched out, no time for preparation of heart and mind. You know, it's one thing to lose all your sheep. I can survive that, I suppose. Uh, but the, the, my children as well, the same day, in the same way, with one messenger just arriving to deliver the bad news, does not seem fair. Four times in a row uh, to be struck right through. Uh, there is no doubt that Job's heart was crushed by this, uh, losing uh, in conclusion. Last, think of it, you know, losing it as if in severity. It gets worse, losing his sons and daughters. Job is going to be feeling a pretty depleted man. Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. It's an amazing person, Job. An amazing figure. I, to imagine yourself in this scenario and to respond like this uh, would say something about uh, who you are. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Soon thereafter, though, it isn't over. We have to also mention that Job was afflicted, as that last picture shows and this one shows, with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd with which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. I don't think it can be any more complete than this to have uh, not only the loss of everything else, but then to have the one closest to you um, lose faith and uh, discourage you in your view of God. Very difficult. Very trying. It seemed as if uh, his wife was still ready to sing the doxology, it just the words had changed. Um, blame God, you know, from whom all cyclones blow. Blame him, all creatures here below. Blame him who knocks down church and steeple, who sends the floods and drowns the people. Uh, you, know, it's, you know, your theology can change depending on the circumstances around you. And um, Job definitely could have been susceptible to this kind of a God. Uh, of course, Job still believed in God. That's what's so remarkable. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And I like the comments uh, from C.S. Lewis when he uh, was once asked the question, why should the righteous suffer? And his answer is amazing. They're the only ones that can handle it. <laughs> you know, have you ever thought about that? They're the only ones that can handle it. Um, now, I'm not sure that that's fully satisfying, um, and I think that there's a lot more to be said and, and discovered about these, uh, this question, but uh, it is an interesting attitude that Job carries through. And he knows nothing. Remember, he does not know 
what the backstory, the rest of the story is. He does not know it. He does not know it. And that is remarkable. Job's rebuke, even, I find, uh, as I read it, uh, is a relatively gentle one to his wife. He says, he does not say, you foolish woman. Uh, he says, you speak as one of the foolish women. He is not uh, really aggressively attacking her. He just seems to more be suggesting that uh, this is a, a short-term lapse on her part, uh, that her faith is just uh, wavering a little bit, and that um, she's sounding like the stupid, foolish women who have no knowledge of God, of the grace and glory of God. In the gentle rebuke, I think you can even see something of, of uh, Job's, uh, you know, people skills, the sturdiness and tenderness of his faith. Uh, in this great sentence, he uh, again asserts the sovereignty of God. Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? Job's wife had expressed the philosophy that life ought to be pleasant. And if all of a sudden things changed for the worse and it was no longer pleasant, uh, then there was no purpose in living. And so, you know, she was willing to give up. And uh, this philosophy, I just have to note and observe, is, is very widespread even today. It is not as if society and Christians, by and large, have learned their lesson from this. Um, but uh, I think that, of course, it was given to help us uh, realize that uh, uh, the reason we exist is not necessarily to have a good time in and of itself while we are still on this fallen world. There are other meaningful objectives to be attained in life, even when it turns uh, sour, very sour. When the pressure comes, when life may no longer be fun to live, uh, it is still worth living. Um, a philosophy that wants to discard and abandon that uh, and leave everything as if, um, abandon everything as soon as things become unpleasant is shallow, mistaken, and I believe distorted. Uh, these are actors, not real people. I would not suffer to uh, put real people here, but uh, you know, to have a different look. And uh, if you were a woman, then I'll allow you to suffer with Job, since as, uh, some of you are ready to. Now, there's a question. Is that it? And that's why I have shared it the way that I have chosen to share it. Were those the tests? Very often, I think, when um, teachers and pastors and others uh, sh read the story of Job, how often have you heard the first two, uh, you know, first couple chapters? That's what we read every time, is, is these two, you know, struggles, these two trials. And Job wins these first two rounds. It is clear that Satan's argument, uh, from the point of view of the prologue, which I assume most of you are familiar with, I'm not reading it, uh, that uh, Satan's argument has been answered. <laughs> it's, all, it's all sealed. The deal is done. Job passed the tests, both of them. His health and his wealth, no problem. Job still praises God. He has, you know, he has passed the tests. So uh, Satan's arguments uh, have been answered, uh, and uh, Job, his health and his wealth, are not enough to sway this man uh, from uh, serving God. He still will not curse God to his face. He still loves God and follows him and serves him uh, and recognizes God's sovereign right over reality, over his life. These were severe trials, again, I must emphasize, and I wonder how many of us would have praised God the way that he did uh, when he experienced them, cold as he did, you know, without any uh, background, without any knowledge of what's backstage. Would we have acted as he, the way that he did? So the question is, for those of you who are familiar with the typical prologue and conclusion version of the story of Job, is why isn't the play over? Why isn't it over? What else is there to pass? Why is Job not, the story of Job not yet done? Why does the play, the real life uh, play, continue? Where's the curtain? Why can't I take off the boils, makeup, and my costume yet. Why does it continue? Did we not learn or can we not learn everything we need to know from the prologue and conclusion? Uh, you know, including in the prologue, uh, you know, his actual tests. Why is there so much else? I think there's a reason for it. Because the trials were not over. There was worse yet to come. 
And that is very important to understand when we're trying to uh, grasp what God is trying to teach us through the story of Job. The prologue and the, tri and the trials, the initial health and wealth tests, and the conclusion are not the heart of the story of Job. That's not really what Job is about, even though that's usually our emphasis. That's not what Job is really about. Before the book of Job was, uh, will be through, we will see every level of pride in Job, every possible level of pride in Job pricked uh, and poked in uh, many ways of which he himself was probably previously uh, unaware that he had these uh, aspects of himself. We will begin to see what God is after in Job's life and in ours by this kind of severe testing that even goes beyond what Satan had uh, introduced, that meaning Satan had introduced his own themes, his own issues. Job passed those themes and issues, at least according to our normal quick reading of the beginning and the end. Job passed. So why is there so much more left to Job, the story of Job? I think there's, again, reasons for it. We can have here, this is the existential pause as you prepare to think like Job without knowing what is going on. Uh, the uh, triple question of uh, who am I, what am I, why am I, uh, no doubt uh, came into Job's mind fairly quickly at this point. You know, what in the world is going on? This does not seem like a coincidence. It really, it can't at this point. The way that the things, the events have happened, uh, it cannot seem to be a coincidence. So the, the existential question surely is, is, has arisen in Job's mind. And um, at this point, I have a summary of part one and then I will move into part two because the lengths of the parts were not quite equal. Uh, part two and three are longer. Um, but I will pause here uh, to summarize what has been accomplished. Job has lost not only his children and all his possessions, but he has also lost his health and all the pleasure of physical life. He has even felt himself abandoned uh, emotionally uh, to some degree by his wife. Um, but one stronghold remains that Satan hadn't even bothered to mention. And that is the moral spirit of Job, Job's uh, inner life his mental life, Job's attitude uh, toward who God is. And there's going to be a couple of different dimensions that come out uh, about this question of Job's uh, inner moral spirit um, and how that relates to the story of Job. I will go ahead and continue for a few minutes uh, into part two on uh, friends and foes and the dangers of common sense theology. Now, I uh, have to preface this uh, with just a few notes on common sense uh, and how it leads us into some difficult quandaries when we think about reality uh, through the common sense lens. Um, last time I shared, and since theodicy is very much related to the issues of freedom uh, in, a, in a normal discussion, but freedom is not really uh, played up a whole lot explicitly in the book of Job. Um, I want to discuss how common sense and freedom, which are two key, key issues in uh, theodicy discussions, the justice of God and, and human suffering, and how we, we relate to God, how they play in uh, to the picture. And um, one of them is, uh, as I was describing, you know, we, uh, even most Adventists, uh, you know, we have no particularly special view of, uh, of science or nature that differs from how any atheist scientist would view nature. Uh, we look at the subjects, uh, disciplines of physics and chemistry and biology, for the most part, the way that any scientist would, right? Uh, you know, any disagreements, some science majors here, uh, for the most part, uh, the, the laboratory science and chemistry and biology is, is the same as uh, for us as it is for anyone who does not believe in God. So we understand uh, nature generally in the same way. Um, now, there is something about uh, nature as it's usually understood that is very important to understand that is very much ingrained as part of what I would call and other philosophers that I've been reading the, the common sense attitude. And that is the cause and effect relationship that is in nature. Nature has a cause and effect relationship. You mix two chemicals 
and uh, a certain result uh, will uh, happen, right? Every time. I mean, if it doesn't, if something unique happens, that would really be, you know, quite unusual. And, and I'm sure your teacher will want to know exactly uh, what happened and, and uh, you know, what alien, you know, they'll immediately be asking what alien uh, chemical uh, solution did you insert into the formula? You know, you changed something. That's why the result is different. So there's a cause and effect relationship in nature. This is how science is understood. Um, this is a very dominant popular understanding of science and it is one that we also have inherited and it is one that for the most part uh, to the greater degree uh, Ellen White also supports. Nature is ruled by cause and effect and understanding the cause and effect relationships uh, like for example on regarding our health is very important because if I drink uh, lots of uh, or eat lots of bad food uh, there will be a cause and effect relationship. So there is definitely cause and effect relationships in nature that um, are very important to understand. Um, however, when we get into the heavy, the heavy hitter issues, uh, the big issues, the tough stuff, uh, when we get into philosophy and uh, the real challenges like theodicy uh, and God and uh, how he relates to humans and suffering and, and moral issues, then common sense will not take us all the way. This, this normal way of thinking will, will meet ends that it cannot uh, penetrate, that it struggles to even understand. Um, in science, a great example right now, um, I don't know if any of you are into uh, psychology or psychiatry, uh, not too many Adventists study those disciplines because uh, quite frankly, especially in psychiatry, um, uh, there's a lot of strange stuff that is taught out there in the classrooms relating to the human mind. But, but there's actually right now out there in the world at large, kind of a crisis in the discipline of psychiatry and neuroscience. Uh, the latest manual, uh, there's a, a special manual that psychiatry, uh, you know, psychiatrists produce, the American you know, Association of Psychiatry, psychiatrists, and it's the DSM, it's a special, uh, the Bible, they call it the Bible, that's literally their name for it, the Bible of Mental Disorders. Um, and uh, the latest version of it, version five, has been a highly contentious book because they're beginning to uh, explain and classify the human mind in more and more, I'll call it kind of deterministic ways. And uh, how understanding how human freedom plays into the human mind um, and whether or not uh, we are free, uh, the human mind is free, um, or whether or not we are, um, you know, have certain, you know, kind of uh, controllable disorders, you know, just the right medicine fixes the mental problem. Uh, these are very wide open questions. I don't know if any of you have any background on these discussions, but if you're a neuroscientist, you know, think about it for a moment. I hope you can follow along and understand uh, kind of the, the puzzle, the, the paradox of, of understanding that all of the biochemical functions of our body are deterministic and orderly, um, and then yet understanding that our mind is still free. You know, how do you relate uh, a deterministic uh, chemistry, a deterministic biology that seems to follow rules and, and, and with a very systematic way with, with the human mind and its freedom. And uh, this, this issue is highly contentious in the academic circles today. You will find uh, very well-known professional uh, biologists and neurobiologists uh, that will tell you that you are not free, that you are completely determined. Um, I don't know if you're, any of you are familiar with a fairly popular figure like Sam Harris. He's made Newsweek magazine you know, cover and these kinds of figures and he'll say, you know, you're not free. He has books, you know, with uh, puppet strings over free will, you know, so it's, you're all a big puppet. Um, so and now the arguments fly back and forth on whether or not this is the case amongst, uh, I'll call it the, the secular atheists. They're not sure because some atheists want to be free too, you know, so it's not like it's just, you know, wide open there. They disagree with each other and that's why as a Christian, when you look at these kinds of issues and uh, you see different agnostics or atheists fighting with each other over whether or not we're even actually free, um, then, you know, you begin to see some of the more complex questions of reality a little bit differently. Some things are not so obvious, some things are not so clear, um, and a little bit of humility and a little bit of a different perspective uh, can go a long ways in helping us think differently about some of the more uh, challenging questions. So um, I think that that can be helpful when we uh, are talking about common sense. Common sense is a great thing. Do look both ways. Do realize that if you, uh, you know, uh, eat too much fruit, then, uh, you know, uh, uh, then you're going to be needing to you know, use the facilities or whatnot. You know, there are just common sense rules, you know, and you need to understand them and, and uh, obey them if you uh, expect to be operating along life smoothly. But common sense has limits. Uh, the logic, the philosophy uh, that we have inherited in our Western culture, which is what we all pro primarily represent, educated uh, you know, Western cultures and societies, it has serious limits. And they are acknowledged depending on which uh, questions you're asking. 
but uh, we often don't think about them. We often are just, you know, float along and take things for granted. We assume a lot of things when we think about uh, what common sense is and how it might relate to theology. So that's uh, kind of a background preface. Now, um, here we uh, have, of course, Job uh, reflecting on his situation, and you know that some friends came to console uh, and condole him, their, their dear friend uh, Job, whom they knew from better times gone by. And Job 2.11 shares that when Job, now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to condole with him and to comfort him. So at least uh, these friends came with what uh, appear to be noble and good and friendly um, desires, right? So at least they, they seem to have the, the first right step. Uh, but things changed. Uh, when they saw him from afar, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they rent their robes and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. I've actually read a couple of commentaries on Job that suggest that possibly, and again, there's no inspiration behind these interpretations, but they were initially sort of silent because, and, and uh, you know, put the dust on their heads and so forth, not just in sympathy with him, because they obviously could not understand or appreciate or have an empathetic relationship. Uh, but uh, they also uh, perhaps thought that uh, he was going to die, and so why not just let him die in peace? You know, the man has lost everything, and now his body is afflicted, um, and surely, uh, you know, this is going to be the end of the man, Job, and so they did not um, speak at first. I'm not sure whether or not that's true, but uh, it is a suggested comment on it as they wait for him. And I did enjoy collecting different uh, pictures from uh, Job and uh, his experiences as I looked around. Now we are set for the major thrust of Job's narrative and the trial of faith of Job, um, which comes not through his physical suffering, but through an attack on his spiritual relationship with God. And it comes through, and this is very important, it comes through the hands of very well, or at least initially well-meaning friends. And that is an important thing to note. Um, these apparently but misguided uh, friends, sincere friends who wanted to help uh, and hope they are helping, uh, but end up actually being the instrument of Satan to assault the castle of Job's faith and almost cause it to collapse. And um, that's why, again, pausing at the first two trials really misses the point of what Job is really going to struggle with the most. Um, the physical, the health and the wealth, he made it through, uh, but uh, there is a challenge yet to come that uh, will be even more unsettling to him, that will come through uh, the mouths of his friends. Um, I liked and chose this picture to place right here because I think you'll see the uh, friend on the left uh, has kind of some piercing eyes, you can kind of see, and uh, I uh, connect this to the, the seven days that they just sat and stared at him, that they were just looking at him. And during those seven days, remember, they had initially come with the intent of being uh, helpful, of being friendly to Job, of, of being uh, a help, to help Job uh, survive this very difficult, uh, inexplicably, you know, uh, at least at surface appearances, uh, ordeal. But um, as they thought about it more and more and more, and you can see it uh, in his uh, penetrating eyes on, on Job, uh, their minds apparently began to shift in what they thought. They did not, uh, you know, stick with uh, simply being um, a shoulder to lean his head upon. Uh, they, they thought, they realized, you know, something else seems to be going on here. Uh, this, this is rather remarkable what Job is going through. 
So um, I call it, you know, the, the seven-day stare. They sit in silence, but they begin to suspect that Job is going through something he actually deserves, that he actually deserves. And this is going to be reflected uh, in the friend's comments. And um, I think we can all begin to uh, imagine that scenario, again, absent any introduction, absent any knowledge of what happened uh, before the curtain was opened on the play, uh, what happened uh, in the costume room uh, as they prepared their makeup and uh, costumes for this uh, situation. They did not understand the, uh, they haven't seen uh, the script. Job hasn't seen the script uh, for the story. Uh, he remains ignorant and the friends are ignorant too. So you bring together these two uh, ignorant groups of uh, the, the rest of the story and you're going to see them uh, wrestling and struggling with uh, some very, very profound issues. Uh, is Job deserving? Here's his wife and uh, friends uh, wondering if Job might actually be deserving. Chapter 3, if you do have your Bibles, you can be you know, following along as you may or where you wish, or when you wish. It begins with several rounds of dialogue between Job and his friends. The chapter opens with a bitter lament from Job first. Weeks have likely gone by. We're not told how much time he has now suffered with his boils. Um, but uh, it has probably been some time, leaving him again uh, baffled and bewildered by what is going on. You have to think like Job to understand the book of Job. You can't just read the prologue. It's helpful, very important, but you can't just read the prologue and the conclusion. Weeks have likely gone by since he was first afflicted with this painful uh, ailment, and God does not seem to explain what he is doing neither to Job, nor to his wife, nor to his friends. Everyone seems to be left in the dark. And uh, another rendition of uh, Job. Job knows nothing of what the prologue shares. So baffled and buffeted and tormented with physical misery, he now opens his mouth with a tremendous cry, which he longs for, um, as he longs for death. And there is our suffering Job. There are three questions that now finally emerge, revealing a little bit more of the mind of Job. Remember, his first response was, you know, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return, uh, blessed be the name of the Lord. But uh, it appears that uh, given a little bit more time to think about it, uh, Job's mind does shift a little bit. Uh, and, um, you know, he begins to wonder, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, this is, this is, you know, cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, he begins to see life a little bit differently. Those existential questions I mentioned earlier, uh, the, you know, who am I, what am I, you know, why am I, uh, are what Job evidently was thinking about. You can read it in Job 3. Uh, he questions why he was born, and he does offer a curse. Cursed be the day that I was born. I'd rather have not been born. Um, and that's not enough. Uh, Job continues, if I was born, why didn't I die at birth? You know, that's uh, a very heavy, heavy progression. Uh, I hope that uh, uh, we don't need to ask those questions very often of, uh, in sequence like this. Why was I born? And if I was, why didn't I die when I was born? And to conclude it, why can't I die now? Job is in a very um, delicate psychological state. I think it can be definitely uh, said. He does not understand what is going on and he is willing to um, give up. Although, again to note it, Clearly, Job does come very close to cursing God. He never does. He does curse the day of his birth, and he does curse what God has allowed to happen. You can see how the pressure is increasing. The, the uh, weight of the problem is growing, and Job is beginning to break and crumble under it 
as this unceasing, unexplained anguish goes on. He doesn't die. You know, it would have probably made more sense to him and his friends and his wife if he had died, but he didn't. Uh, you see this amazing progression from uh, this, this uh, day of uh, calamity, um, and then you see his body oppressed uh, by the boils and physical suffering, such that he picks up the scabs uh, and the boils with a, a potsherd, um, and it just goes on, you know, an indefinite period of time. It just goes on, there is no stopping it, um, and he is left to uh, ask those questions of, you know, if I, you know, why was I born? And um, if I was, why, didn't, why did God bother to let me live, and why won't he let me die now? I want to note um, before we end the first session um, that I do not think that uh, Job is thinking of suicide. I don't think that's what his state of mind uh, is. Uh, last time I presented it uh, uh, earlier, um, someone was asking that question of whether or not they thought that Job was suicidal. I don't think so. Um, and I think as the narratives progress, uh, you'll definitely uh, see Job's mind very active, um, and uh, he, uh, you know, obviously begins to defend himself. So I don't, I don't see the mind of someone that's suicidal. Um, I simply see, uh, as I have here, that uh, God is, I mean, that Job is, is ready to die. You know, there is a difference between, I think, and I'll let, uh, you know, psychologists really speak to that, but um, I think there's a difference between being uh, suicidal and being ready to die. There is, there is a difference. Um, so... Uh, there's no more purpose to life. His life as he knew it has been so utterly uh, destroyed. Um, and not only that, uh, but you know, at his, in his current state, he can't uh, even imagine or fathom uh, rebuilding a new life because he doesn't know why the boils have come. He does not know what disease or ailment uh, he has. And he does not know that he will live. So in his mind, he can be very ready to die uh, because life has no more pleasure to it. Uh, he had been given much. God had blessed him, you know, sufficiently and greatly in his early life. And uh, now there is simply no more um, reason to, to live. And um, obviously I think that uh, the book uh, was written of Job, the story of Job was given, that uh, there are still reasons to live, even when life can seem to lo completely lose uh, its meaning. Um, and you can imagine any number of scenarios in your own personal life um, and I know, you know, some students, uh, you know, you hear about it now and then, um, you know, where they were trying to go on to become uh, a lawyer or a doctor and uh, they fail their, you know, exam at a key point after they've already invested years into that track of their education. And, uh, you know, so they commit suicide or this or that. You know, you always uh, hear about these very unfortunate situations. And I, I hope that uh, we personally are not uh, too close to to any of them or to many of them, but I know that um, there are always, you know, going to be, um, you know, varying degrees of um, the suffering of those around us, uh, and uh, you know, understanding that, uh, you know, when life has lost its focus, lost its orientation, we've dedicated everything to something, um, or we have lived a certain way, we have understood life in, in a certain way, and uh, that has been pulled out. The rug has been completely pulled out from under us. Um, that uh, there still can be meaning. Um, and that is one of the lessons of Job, that there is still uh, meaning to life. And um, I will pause here. I know it's uh, halfway through part two, but uh, the length of the parts is um, uh, out of sequence. And so I will pause and, and allow for a few uh, questions or comments before I continue uh, tomorrow with uh, part um, two, uh, the last half of part two and part three. Are there any comments on this reading of it? Um, any questions or anything? Yes. I hope I'm not jumping ahead, but I was wondering, mm -hmm. I can't call my mind thinking, comparing this and the time of Jacob's trouble. Is there any relation? Time of Jacob's trouble. Um, yeah, uh, I had not uh, prepared any uh, portions on that. Actually, I know great controversy themes are, are part of my title, but I'm dealing with it from a slightly different perspective. Um, I do believe that there are lessons uh, to learn uh, from Job's uh, struggles and sufferings uh, and also from Jacob's struggles and sufferings because they were also of a mental sort. Um, that's, uh, you know, again, we often, uh, uh, reality has the, the quote-unquote physical dimension, uh, the wrestling, 
uh, and these kinds of uh, things, uh, these kinds of struggles that seem to come from the outside. Uh, just like with Job, the health and wealth uh, trials are, are very prominent and uh, they were, are always going to be connected usually, not always, but usually with uh, mental inner struggles um, in, in one way or another. Uh, so yes, you, you can make some of those uh, connections, but, uh, but yeah, um, this, is, this is a unique and difficult one though. Uh, than even I think what uh, Jacob's struggles are highlighting, although they are related. No, I, yeah. I, I didn't mean mm-hmm. particularly Jacob as the mm-hmm. person. I mean Jacob as the event, the prophetic event. Right. You're referring to the great controversy and, and the end of time. Right. Yeah. Right. That's, that's why I understood it. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, the word inconsequential uh, is, of course, uh, a strong word. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, I don't think you can, can say that it's truly inconsequential when we experience it. We certainly won't be thinking so. Uh, but, uh, but that is what I'm actually saying, is that compared to uh, the uh, this trial of the dialogues, compared to the trial of his friend's dialogues, um, that was not the real issue. And what's so interesting about that is, is that, that the Satan hadn't even set it up that way. Uh, you know, I think Satan obviously plays a role in inspiring uh, the, his Job's friends to say what they say, um, and that that's definitely part of God's uh, understanding of the situation. But as it's presented in the prologue, this is actually left absent, and you have to more uh, pull it out from the implicit uh, you know, sections uh, of what uh, the dialogues actually say, and which we often ignore, not always, but often. We don't emphasize that aspect of it enough. We are so, um, in our everyday lives, our everyday understandings of the reality, we are always so into the health and wealth um, that we sometimes forget uh, you know, that uh, the real struggle uh, is really uh, the inner spiritual one and not simply uh, relating to the health and wealth, which is, of course, important, but, but not, not the one that God really cares about. And so when we think about theodicy, uh, this is very important. Yes, a further comment? Yeah. Job, yeah. Job suffered that too. Okay, that's what I was thinking when I said inconsequential. I didn't mean mm-hmm. it in that mm-hmm. sense. It's the fact that it yeah. was what I had gone through. Comparatively, mm-hmm. that was the most difficult mm-hmm. part. Yep, it often is. I also didn't mention it in the lecture, and it's a very, very difficult uh, point, but I will come around, skirt around the issues of it in the succeeding lectures. But um, there's also... Uh, the tendency that we have when we're thinking about uh, these issues or the Jobian saga and theodicy to uh, view it through the lens of uh, the protagonist as if uh, when I'm trying to relate it to my life, I'm Job. Um, and uh, in, in certain senses, in certain contexts, that is, is often true because God does care about us. And if we're reflecting and thinking about it ourselves, if we are thinking about it, then it definitely is relating to us as, as the Jobian character as we try and understand our life circumstances at different times. But, uh, the, but there is also the question of um, when we understand the complexity of theodicy of, of what uh, has been called the uh, collateral damage question. Um, did his children deserve to take part in this? Uh, you know, for, okay, the animals and the sheep, uh, you know, but uh, the children as well. Um, and uh, and I'll, as I'll note later, that actually comes into the dialogues. They are not absent from the dialogues. His, his friends remind him of this uh, and, uh, and use it in a painful way. Um, so, you know, there's always these other questions. And when we think about our lives, you know, we, we'd like to think that I'm Joe, but what if you're just one of the pawns? What if you're one of the children? What if, uh, you know, other people, you know, I'm, I'm only asking these challenging questions because uh, Job, as it's presented, uh, presents many layers uh, of issues. And uh, they're heavy ones. They're heavy ones. No, no denying it. Uh, these are heavy, heavy questions that uh, uh, have very uh, difficult answers, uh, if we can call them answers. But, but I am working towards... Um, a, uh, a uh, as I said, a, hopefully a fresh, fresh way of looking at this in a positive light. But, but we have to, you know, go through Job first, and I think that uh, you can really grip, 
grip his picture better when you uh, skip the prologue and come back, come back to it, uh, and some of the issues that God is, is really looking at. Any other comments? We have a minute or two. I was going to say it was great uh, mm. with the common theology where his friends brought the cause and effect. Oh, yes. The, the, I'm sure there's potential. But oh, yes. The, the effect of what's happening to the must be cause. Mm. There is a cause, which oh, is yes. true. Oh, yes. But that's right. That's right. There is cause and effect, but, but the cause and effect chain is, is not uh, so neatly interlinked that, uh, that we can discern it so easily. Uh, and that's right. Yes. Of course. He, he doesn't know whether we're going to dig, how we're going to come through it, but God knows. Mm-hmm. And as I went through mine, I thought, God knows I'm going through this. He must know I can deal with this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And God does. made it foolish to even challenge God because God already knew Job wasn't going to fall. So mm-hmm. why did Satan even challenge God? But that's a whole other. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think Satan did know. I mean, you're asking if Satan knew well, Job. Satan, I, Satan Well, yeah, that, that, that there you're jumping into uh, right into one of the heavy, heavy philosophical questions of divine foreknowledge. Um, and uh, uh, I will come back to that question because it's one I've thought a lot about. Uh, and very, very quickly to tease you on, on your minds, um, as I've mentioned, uh, divine foreknowledge, uh, which I do believe in and accept, um, and I'll, I'll talk about this more next time. But, um, uh, you know, it's something of a mystery, but uh, as I've tried to say, we don't even understand what freedom is. <laughs> In and of itself, we don't even understand the present freedom. We don't even understand how we make decisions fully. Oh, you know, we, we learn more from psychology and biology, uh, but the more that we learn, you know, that doesn't help us. It actually makes it more you know, determined, the more determined we seem to be. And uh, that becomes its own philosophical struggle and problem, as uh, various agnostic and atheist biologists you know, are revealing in their writings. So um, before we can jump to those mysteries, you know, let, let's go one mystery at a time and work our way up the ladder uh, before we, uh, you know, take things uh, too, too quickly uh, down, down some paths. So. But these are heavy issues. I know uh, all of you, as I've, I've mentioned, and, and others, you know, we all connected this in one way or another. Um, and uh, sometimes more than once, sometimes in different ways, uh, sometimes only one component of it, uh, you know, um, although not usually in the uh, direct severity and the manner in which Job, uh, you know, that was, it's hard to say coincidence there. Uh, that was tough, and, and that plays into uh, the, the nature of, of uh, his friend's response. But yes? I just wanted to ask, so you mm-hmm. say discretion and freedom and time. Is mm-hmm. that related to theodicy? It if is, so, of course. What's the, how is the time element? Well, uh, that's, that's the whole issue. Um, besides the issue of freedom being one of the greatest intellectual puzzles uh, of philosophy, and I mean to this day, we don't, you know, if you find someone that knows what freedom is, as I said, uh, you know more than me, um, and more than anyone, uh, I think, uh, and they know uh, more than, than they think, or they know less than they think they know. I'll say, that, let's say it accurately. They know less than they think they know, but the, the other biggest question, philosophical puzzle, is what is time? Um, and, uh, you know, time, um, uh, understood as a, a mere sequence of cause and effect, uh, there, there is no time in this. If you are at all familiar, and I don't want to tease you with things that you may not have thought about, but if you're into Einsteinian space-time, you realize that uh, he, he says reality is timeless. There is no time, and that it's all relative in the sense of it's, it's all you know, part of one uh, you know, continuum, and it's kind of a, you know, he has the block universe idea, if you have ever heard of this. So if time and space can be related or uh, time can be integrated into space in the way that Einstein says it is, then there is no past, present, future, and all is, all is timeless. On the one hand, Christians have seized onto this and said, "Ah, oh, see, God is timeless, and this is all wonderful Calvinistic teachings. Uh, you know, for Calvinists, they have no problem with this. Uh, but on the other hand, this view of time as being timeless, as space and time being all part of one cause and effect continuum, also precludes any freedom. <laughs> there is no freedom in that world. Uh, there cannot be. Freedom must then be outside of time, uh, and then you have a paradox or a contradiction between of how uh, freedom relates to this cause and effect continuum, which is part of the, the human free will issue in, in brain science. So there's no, no denying uh, the, the, the problem. So time and freedom are, are uh, two sides of one coin, in, in my view, um, and uh, they, they relate to each other. So it's, uh, 
difficult, heavy stuff <laughs> that we don't have answers to, uh, any, anyone. So, all right, I think uh, time is expired. I, of course, am available for any other further comments, but um, I hope you are enjoying your GYC experience in 2014 in Orlando, Florida. I don't think I mentioned it this time, maybe I, I think I did before, but uh, since I come from Michigan um, and uh, I had to shovel a foot of snow uh, off my driveway to get to the airport, uh, it was so nice to land in a, a warmer uh, Orlando uh, you know, airport uh, climate for a few days before I returned to the frigid north. <laughs> so uh, it's good to be here. Thank you. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.